Hi, you're listening to the Yale Anesthesiology Podcast. Make sure to visit our show website so that you can take advantage of the links of the papers that will be mentioned during this recording. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Antonio Gonzalez, and today I'm thrilled to present our next guest. Dr. Jennifer Dominguez is an associate professor at Duke University Medical Center. Dr. Dominguez is a leading expert in topics related to morbid obesity, particularly obstructive sleep apnea in pregnant people. Today, we're here to discuss her recently published article titled Society of Anesthesia and Sleep Medicine and the Society for Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology Consensus Guideline on the Screening, Diagnosis, and Treatment of Obstructive Sleep Apnea in Pregnancy. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Dominguez. Thank you so much, Dr. Gonzalez, for inviting me to speak on your podcast today about our recent consensus guideline. I'm really excited about this. It's been uh, something that we worked on for uh, several years, particularly during the pandemic. And I'd like to acknowledge uh, my co-authors, the multidisciplinary team that worked on this over uh, the last several years, especially the senior author, Dr. Gada Vojeli, who has also mentored me. So yeah, first of all, congratulations on that publication. Um, I think that article was great. And guidelines are usually published to answer pressing questions regarding the topic in question, in this case, obstructive sleep apnea, because there seems to be a lot of concerns regarding how to manage patients with obstructive sleep apnea. So I guess the first question that comes to mind is, why is obstructive sleep apnea in pregnant patients such a concern for, for the obstetric anesthesiologist? Yeah, so thanks for asking that. You know, one of the reasons why I got interested in this topic is because I'm very interested in maternal safety. I take care of a high-risk population here in Durham, North Carolina, and many of those patients have morbid obesity. But the retrospective studies that we have that have looked at uh, anesthesia-related complications in the peripartum period uh, have identified OSA and obesity as significant risk factors for maternal morbidity and mortality. And so that's how I got interested in this topic. And then about a decade ago now, there were several large retrospective studies that showed that there were associations between obstructive sleep apnea and maternal death, uh, between OSA and preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, and other severe maternal outcomes. And then um, more recently, there was a large prospective study that demonstrated that patients with OSA in pregnancy actually were at higher risk for hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and gestational diabetes. And so OSA is a comorbidity that is of you know, serious concern to uh, not only obstetricians, but to obstetric anesthesiologists who care for patients in the peripartum period. And uh, what we don't yet know and what the literature hasn't answered at this point is whether treating OSA can actually mitigate the adverse pregnancy-associated outcomes that are associated with it, like hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and gestational diabetes. But we do have enough evidence from the anesthesia literature to suggest that, you know, knowing about patients' OSA status, treating it, and um, you know, caring for them with 
um, particular protocols around the peripartum period is likely to improve their safety um, in receiving anesthesia and having surgery. Yeah, de definitely. It seems like we should be knowing about which patients are the ones that have obstructed sleep apnea. And definitely, as you mentioned, more research is needed to see if we can improve those outcomes that you just mentioned. So do we have any idea why obstructive sleep apnea is contributing to all these other um, factors like hypertension, diabetes? Do we have, is it clear why is this happening? We don't know why, um, the, what the underlying pathophysiologic mechanisms are there, but we can make some extrapolations from the non-pregnant population where we know that OSA is associated with cardiovascular risk, with metabolic disease, um, and that, you know, there are hypotheses that having intermittent hypoxemia during sleep may, you know, trigger endothelial dysfunction and inflammatory pathways that can be implicated in the pathophysiology of these diseases, but we really don't have those answers yet. Yeah. So, so yeah, definitely, again, more research is needed in this area. And um, we believe that you and your research team will help us with uh, farther understanding these uh, disease and how it contributes to other comorbidities. So who should be screened for obstructive sleep apnea during pregnancy? Yeah, thanks for that question. That is an important and it sounds simple, but it's actually a very complex question. Um, our guideline committee considered several factors when we examined the literature and made these recommendations. One of the things we considered was, is obstructive sleep apnea prevalent in pregnant people? Um, are there effective treatments for it? And if we find it, what will, will there be a treatment to prevent any of the adverse pregnancy outcomes associated with it? So based on the available evidence that we have today, and the expert opinion of our guideline committee, we actually don't recommend screening all pregnant people for OSA because the prevalence in the general pregnant population is pretty low, probably somewhere between three and 8% based on the literature we have. And the severity in the larger population is mostly mild. However, we did identify groups for which the risk of clinically significant OSA in pregnancy was considerably higher and do suggest screening in these groups during the first or second trimester. And these are patients with BMI greater than 30 and patients with a history of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy or diabetes in a prior pregnancy or in this pregnancy, if those conditions have uh, been diagnosed at the time of evaluation. Yeah, so that really helps knowing that it's not all that prevalent. Um, but you mentioned that one of the groups that your uh, the guidelines suggest should be screened are the patients with a BMI of more than 30. Now, unfortunately, obesity has reached epidemic levels in the United States. So what are your thoughts regarding the potential burden on the health system for screening every single patient or most patients with a BMI more than 30 during pregnancy? So... What we've seen in, our, in the available studies to date are that obesity um, and OSA are connected um, in a much higher percentage of patients than in the general population. And so in cohorts of obese pregnant patients, we have seen um, prevalences of OSA of anywhere from 
20 to 60% in some studies. So while obesity and its associated comorbidities, such as OSA, are certainly a burden on the healthcare system, I don't believe the answer is to ignore the problems and not screen. I think if we do that, we'll see more and more adverse outcomes associated with these untreated comorbidities. And from a public health standpoint, I see pregnancy as an opportunity to intervene and positively impact a person's future health and possibly the health of their children and their families. So we definitely need more studies to streamline screening tools so that they can be utilized easily and efficiently in prenatal clinics. But we believe this is feasible. Yeah, I think I think that you you mentioned something that I think is going to be key. And in order for it not to be a burden and actually to be of, of benefit to our patients, the process needs to be streamlined. So I, I think that is a you know definitely something that needs to be looked into. Now there are several screening tools for obstructive sleep apnea, like the Stop Bang and the ASA checklist, among others. Which one is the best for our obstetric patient population? Thanks, Dr. Gonzalez. So uh, our guideline committee looked at this in depth and in detail. And um, the ex currently accepted uh, screening tools in the non-pregnant population, such as those you referred to, Stop Bang, ASA Checklist, Berlin Questionnaire, Upward Sleepiness Scale, are just not very reliable in pregnant people. And so our committee does not recommend using those um, to screen for OSA in pregnant people. There have, however, been several pregnancy-specific screening tools that were derived and tested in pregnant cohorts that are much more promising and that we do suggest be considered for use at this time in the absence of other tools. But we also concluded that all of these, even the ones that were derived and tested in pregnant cohorts, still need to be further validated outside of the derived cohorts in high-risk populations. Great. So you already mentioned these. Uh, now moving into the diagnosis, and you mentioned that patients, when they meet the criteria to be tested, they should be tested in the first or second trimester. Now, what are the options for our patients for diagnosis? Is a home study... Um, you know, available, and this could actually be another way to decrease the burden on the health system, or do patients need to actually go and do a sleep study in a hospital or at a facility? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. So our guideline committee actually included sleep medicine specialists that care for pregnant patients in the clinical setting, and our recommendations were based on fairly limited evidence in this area, as well as their own expert opinion. Um, so... However, a number of studies have compared home sleep testing to in-lab polysomnography, which is definitely still the gold standard for the diagnosis of OSA. And these studies suggest that home sleep studies or portable home sleep tests can actually be quite reliable um, and a convenient method of testing for sleep-disordered breathing in a population for whom it may actually be particularly difficult to sleep out of home um, if they have caregiving responsibilities or work responsibilities that may make it difficult for them to actually have an in-hospital exam. Great. Yeah. So, so that, that, you know, if that is the case, this may be an alternative, but definitely it seems like more research is needed in this area to give more robust answers to that question. Um, 
Now, before we move into the next couple of questions regarding the monitoring, I would like to ask a couple of more clinical questions, right? It seems like as of now, obstructive sleep apnea, and, and, and I actually, that may be a good question for you. I think it's probably underdiagnosed. What, what are your thoughts? I think it's definitely underdiagnosed. And um, that was one of the reasons why I became interested in this topic and why we actually formed this committee and decided to write a guideline was to increase awareness, uh, not just amongst obstetric anesthesiologists, which is my specialty, but among obstetricians and uh, other providers that care for patients in the peripartum period. Yeah, because it is probably underestimated the patients that are, you know, have obstructive sleep apnea, one of the medications that we provide to our patients, we give preservative-free morphine, it's considered to be the gold standard for postoperative analgesia for those patients that undergo cesarean delivery. Now, one of the, the concerns the, of this medication is the respiratory depression. Now, I'm a little curious about how do you go about manage, managing the patient with morbid obesity with or without a diagnosis of sleep apnea, knowing that the use of preservative-free morphine could, um, you know, cause more case, more apnea uh, in the patient's sleep. Thanks for this question. It's definitely one that comes up frequently in these discussions. Uh, a subgroup of the consensus guideline committee that authored the guidelines we're talking about today is actually working on a guideline of recommendations regarding the peripartum management of OSA in pregnant people that's going to answer this question and other important safety considerations for this population. Um, but um, what I can tell you what I do and, you know, kind of where my practice is currently, in the concepts that currently impact my practice, the data that we have on neuroxial morphine administration for post-cesarean delivery pain suggests that it is very safe at ultra-low or low doses those are doses less than 150 mics of intrathecal preservative-free morphine or three milligrams of epidural morphine. Even in higher-risk populations like obese patients or patients with OSA, I think these decisions still need to be made on a case-by-case -case basis, taking into account individual patient risk factors, comorbidities, the severity of the OSA, and other medications that they may be on, such as magnesium, which is a medication that is sedating and is used frequently in this population that has a higher burden of preeclampsia. Um, but I do use low-dose neuropsial morphine in this population with the assumption that not using it might result in patients using more intravenous or oral opioids in the first 24 hours postoperatively. And that regional techniques um, such as tap blocks um, are not always sufficient or technically feasible in this population. I agree 100%. I mean, I, that's the way I, I think about it as well. I, I think if we actually abstain from giving the preservative-free morphine uh, to this patient population, they may end up getting IV narcotics or oral narcotics, which may not actually be as safe as we've known uh, preservative-free morphine to be. Talking about uh, safety profile, I want to thank you so much for, um, during our offline conversation, bringing up that study uh, published in IJOA 2021, 
titled Quantifying the Incidence of Clinically Significant Respiratory Depression in Women with and Without Obesity Class 3 Receiving Neuraxial Morphine for Postesarin Analgesia, a retrospective cohort study. In this study, they evaluated 11,327 women received, that received neuraxial morphine, and their conclusion was essentially that neuraxial morphine was not deemed causative for any respiratory event. However, neuraxial morphine was found to be contributory in five respiratory events. So again, as you mentioned, and again, thank you for bringing this study up, which is a great study. The reality is that we need to monitor our patients very closely, particularly those with uh, comorbidities such as high BMI, BMI more than 40, or patients, patients receiving other medications that can potentially sedate the patient, such as magnesium, um, anxiolytics, and any other medication that may cause sedation to the patient and add to the risk of respiratory depression. So the next question, uh, the next set of questions will be regarding how do we monitor these patients that are at extremely high risk for um, apnea, particularly these morbidly obese patients, uh, per morbidly obese patients, and the patients with known obstructive sleep apnea. How would you recommend we monitor these patients? So at this time, I would recommend following the SOAP consensus recommendations on this topic, which actually recommends respiratory rate and sedation assessments every hour for the first 12 hours and then every two hours for the first 12 to 24 hours. However, our consensus guideline that is upcoming using a Delphi process to obtain consensus of expert opinion is going to actually address this specific issue. At this time, however, um, what I think is that patients with OSA should wear CPAP in the hospital after delivery if it's available to them. And that decisions regarding monitoring should take into account what medications they've received, if they've had surgery, and if they've received any sedating antiemetics or anxiolytics, which generally should be avoided in this population. Yeah. I mean, I'm already looking forward to the results of uh, that uh, committee um, opinion. So do you recommend, like, for example, uh, there are some new devices that can actually measure tidal volume and, and other devices like the transcutaneous CO2. Would you recommend any of these devices at this point, or we don't have enough evidence to recommend any of these specialized monitoring devices? There have been some interesting studies regarding the use of those devices in post-cesarean delivery patients. However, I just don't think we have enough evidence to recommend them for any particular population at this time. However, you know, that said, measuring ventilation, respiratory rate, you know, it has the potential to be a more sensitive tool than measuring oxygen saturations, which tend to be a late finding in um, the course of, you know, patients who have been having hypoventilation um, for a number of hours. Yeah, we've tried to do some research with the use of uh, tidal volume measuring devices. And one of the problems, it's patients actually uh, willingness to have the devices and wear the devices. So that's definitely one of the issues. Now, you mentioned another great thing uh, that was going to be another one of my questions, which was, would you recommend 
the patients bring in their own CPAP. So we actually encourage patients um, in our pre-anesthesia testing clinic um, when they come for surgery uh, at our institution to bring their CPAP to the hospital. Uh, we also encourage peripartum patients to bring their CPAP to the hospital for their peripartum admissions. We do that counseling generally in the uh, anesthesia testing clinic. So we actually have a um, obstetric anesthesia consult clinic where we see high-risk patients. Um, we see patients with BMIs um, greater than 50. We see patients with um, known obstructive sleep apnea and many other comorbidities as well. And so we actually do OSA screening in that clinic as well as counseling for patients with established diagnoses. And at that point, we do encourage them to bring their CPAP to the hospital for their admission and, and utilize it. I do think that this requires the cooperation of others, you know, at your institution. And, you know, it's important to partner with um, obstetricians, with um, nurses and midwives um, so that patients are supported in using these devices during naps and, and while sleeping in the hospital. Um, and um, if patients, you know, aren't able to bring their device for whatever reason, whether it's an emergency admission or are they, you know, it's forgotten. Um, some of our patients live very far from the hospital. Um, we actually have mechanisms in place with respiratory therapy to provide devices for patients while they're in the hospital. Now, when it comes to treatment, what will be the maternal and fetal benefits of early diagnosis and treatment? So at this time, there really aren't any known fetal benefits of early diagnosis and treatment. That doesn't mean that they don't exist. It just means that, you know, we don't have sufficient evidence to recommend treatment based on fetal benefit alone. There's a number of studies that have looked at this, and there have been a number of outcomes that have been looked at retrospectively that um, have been, in terms of fetal outcomes that have been associated with OSA, such as ICN or NICU admission, but we just don't have enough evidence right now to understand whether the treatment and intervention would actually prevent um, any of the fetal adverse outcomes that have been shown. In terms of maternal benefit, um, we also don't yet know if treating OSA, you know, in an, in an index pregnancy would prevent preeclampsia in that pregnancy or gestational diabetes or other adverse outcomes. But I think we do have enough evidence from, you know, from the, even the non-pregnant literature in anesthesiology to suggest that knowing this information, getting treated before delivery imparts um, a benefit to the patient, not just in terms of their long-term health, because we certainly have evidence for that, but actually for their, you know, peri-anesthesia care and their potential post-surgical care. Um, because we know that this population is going to have a high rate of cesarean deliveries. And so a lot of these patients are going to undergo laparotomy and have um, surgery where they're going to require um, medication. Some of them may have preeclampsia, which we know can interact with um, OSA um, and actually um, make uh, airway edema worse and, and worsen obstruction, you know, in the short term. Um, and so for this, you know, population, um, which is just at very high risk for having complications related to um, 
respiration and, and perioperative complications, um, we feel that knowing this information can benefit the patient um, both during the peripartum period and also for their long-term health. Thank you so much. That was great. I think that we've covered um, a lot of the important things about the guidelines. Is there anything from the guidelines that I would like to highlight that um, has not been asked during uh, this podcast so far? No, I would just want to end the podcast by thanking you for inviting me. I'm so uh, always excited to talk about this topic and, um, you know, to highlight the excellent work that my co-authors did um, in creating this guideline. But, um, you know, I'd just like to encourage providers to screen high-risk populations in the first or second trimester to collaborate with sleep medicine physicians at your institution and ensure timely evaluation and treatment of this vulnerable population, to consider seeing patients with OSA in a pre-anesthesia consult clinic and encourage them to bring their CPAPs to the hospital for any hospital admissions, um, to encourage education of nurses and obstetrical providers at your institution to support patient use of peripartum CPAPs as well as screening, um, and to use multimodal analgesia and um, best practices um, as we you know, currently know them regarding the safe um, administration of medications and care of uh, patients with OSA perioperatively. Thank you so much. Those were some five great recommendations. Um, and again, congratulations on this publication. I think that there is tons of... Um, new research uh, that it's very important for us to hear about. So thank you for, uh, you know, being a leading expert on this area of obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, thank you again so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure.